0: Thank you James. It's good to see all of you today. I know we have a few guests and visitors with us today. We're very glad that you're here. How we say things in the Redeemer community is whoever you are, wherever you're coming from across London, whatever you walk through the doors of this place with, you're very welcome here. So we hope you feel welcome this afternoon. I'm even encouraged by listening to me uh, talk to the room uh, from God's Word uh, from this book called Corinthians right here. It's good to see each and every one of you. Glad we're here. I'm going to talk with you this afternoon on the theme of judgment. Um, not the sense of judgment that God might have for us so that's going to be present, but the way we judge ourselves, the way we kind of regard ourselves, and the way we look around the room and we judge one another. Um, that's where we are, and close at hand to that is this issue of uh, pride. Um, it's pride that actually leads us to judgment. So we'll be we'll be dealing in that subject a little bit this afternoon as well. Um, don't worry, I'm not just going to go on a run. Uh, that's actually what this is about. That's what the the text that James just read for us is is talking specifically about. So that'll be the the focus of our time together this afternoon. But I want you to be able to kind of hear those words that were just read to you, or even be able to see those words in the Bible that James just read so well, and I want you to be able to pick up on the dynamic that this guy named Paul who wrote these words is dealing in. Did you hear what he said? Verse three, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. And then he says this, and I think this phrase right here is just remarkable. He says, I don't even judge myself. I wonder how that lands for a few of us living in judgmental London. Yeah. I mean, you can't walk down uh, the sidewalk without being judged by somebody around here. Have you noticed, you know, oh, you're walking too fast. Oh, you're walking too slow. Oh, you you're here at all. You know, like we know judgment, you know, I mean, who has, I mean, this place is great at building up a sense of corporate shame, even in like, oh, I was in the wrong place. Oh, I said the wrong thing. Oh, I put my foot in my mouth again. Yeah. We, we get, we get judgment. Some of us are so hard on ourselves. Some of us are so hard on other people. Watch this one. Some of us, we appear to be so easy on ourselves. We appear to be so easy on other people. And we are some of the worst at being hard on ourselves and hard on other people. This idea of judgment. yeah. Now, one of the the thesis I want to put before you this afternoon is that the man who wrote these words, he was so full of something different, that he was able to live like this. The world around him, I would say the world around us, is very puffed up. And the guy who wrote these words, he found a secret. And the secret was how to be filled up. Maybe that for a thesis this afternoon. How to, how can we, how can we be a group of people that's filled up, we're solid on the inside, we have something solid inside of us, we're solid, we're filled up, and we're not puffed up. Now, the problem is that each and every one of us were made for a relationship with God. And the problem is that we've all turned our backs on God. And when we turn our backs on God, we're looking for ways to kind of fill up the void that that relationship with God was intended for. We were intended to have one who's outside of us look in on us and say, I see you, I know you, I love you, I'm going to stick with you, and I'm going to be relentless about my relationship with you. We were made for that. And when we don't have that, we have a void inside of us. Watch this. When people all around London don't have that, people all around London, they look for things to fill the void with. So what do we do? We puff it up and we puff it up and we puff it up. And we think, I can put enough stuff in here, I can put enough sex in here, I can put enough status in here, I can put enough pleasure in here, I can put enough relationships in here, and I can kind of puff myself up where I'll look solid, I'll look big, I will look important, but all the while, we know we're just puffed up. Meanwhile, Paul is sitting over here, and Paul has found a different dynamic. Paul is sitting over here saying, listen, um, I don't care what you think about me. I don't care what any human court thinks about me. I don't even think about myself. That's a man who's filled up. Very different than people who are puffed up. Now, Christian, this is what's available to you. And this is, if you're anything like me, this that we're talking about this afternoon, this is the thing that you kind of spend your Christian existence kind of swerving into and living like that and then swerving out of it. You forget about it. You go back to puffing yourself up. And it's like, whoa, whoa, no, I need to be filled up with God. And it's like you drift from that. And I, I kind of go back to my own puffed up sort of days and ways. yeah. Soren Kierkegaard, oh, we figured out this guy's from Denmark. He says, it's the normal state of the human heart to build itself around something other than God. And if we're not connected to God, if we're not being filled up by God, it's the normal state of affairs just to be trying to puff ourselves up. Oh, just a few more accolades. I'll just a few more relationships. I'll just drop, name dropping a few more people. That'll do it. But we know the feeling. We know what it's like to feel empty. We know what it's like to feel deflated. We know what it's like to know we're not filled up. We're just puffed up. So that's kind of introducing it. Here's, here's what I want to do. How to, be, how to be filled up in a puffed up world. It's actually going to require us to glimpse at the whole chapter, then the specific section, have a thought about pride, then judgment, then freedom, and then have the Lord's Supper. Let's see how quick we can get through this. Uh, Three characteristics of God's minister. That is what the whole chapter is about. And you need to be able to appreciate what the the whole chapter is about to be able to see what he's saying in these few verses. Um, You might remember last week, if you were in the house with us, he spent last week giving us these three pictures uh, from chapter three. He was talking about who the church is. Um, I don't want to put you on the spot and ask if anybody can remember those. Maybe we could even just appreciate in that moment, man, how well is that fixed in my head? But we go through chapter three and we have these three pictures for what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be part of God's house. Then he turns the tables right here in chapter four, and he's going to name these three metaphors or these three pictures for the ministers in God's house. So he says, like, look, look, you're God's field, you're God's building, you're God's temple, and now he's going to turn the attention and speak directly to the ministers. And this is actually something that matters for every single man and woman in this room right now. Because you need to know what the Bible says that the ministers of God's house, they ought to be working out. And here's a chapter. And what would I be like if I knew this was here and I held that back from you? It would be urgent just to bring it to you and say, so... The Bible says that for me and the elders of this church and whoever's going to pass to this church, the Bible says that individual needs to be marked by these things. Let's just have a look. He gives us this first attribute of faithfulness, and he gives it to us in this metaphor of a steward. He says, listen, the ministers of God's house, the elders in his church, the pastors in his church, they are stewards. You see it in verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. That's what we're going to focus on. Paul answered the leaders. He answered the complaints that were being lodged. And he's saying, listen, if you're looking to understand who I am as a pastor, if you Paul is saying, if you're looking to understand who I am as the guy who spent some time in Corinth and I've left, you need to think of me as a steward. A steward, it's an interesting word. He refers to the people who worked in the bottom of the row in, in, in the Roman boats as the under rowers. He said, that's who we are. I'm not the captain. Jesus is the captain. And I'm just in the bottom of the boat and I'm just rowing the steward. Or the other way you could understand the metaphor is you could understand someone who's the caretaker in a home that doesn't belong to him. I'm just here. These are, this is God's business. These are God's things. These are God's people. I don't own anything in this place. And I am here. I look to the head of the house. I look to Jesus and I just move things around and I arrange things, but it's about Jesus. It's in that context that he says, I don't care what you think about me. He says, I don't care what any court would ever drag me in and whatever a a judgment a court could level on me. And then he says, as I'm doing this, I'm not even thinking about me. He's thinking about something else. He has found a way to be filled up and not puffed up. A minister is a servant who's managing everything for the master. And he says, the pastors of the church, they're supposed to be stewards of the mysteries of God. The incarnation, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the giving of the Holy Spirit. Ministers of the church, they're guardians of these truths. They're to shield people when they try to enter into those truths. They're to guard. They're to make sure these truths are served. Faithfulness is what we're looking for, stewardship. Second, in verses 7 to 13, he says ministers of the church ought to have humbleness to them. And what he he means by this is he calls them ministers of the church. They're just a spectacle. Now that would have landed different for them than it does for us. So let me explain a little bit. When Paul called himself a spectacle, and when Paul says all ministers of all churches, they're just spectacles, they're supposed to be a spectacle, he was using a very common word in the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, the government kept people pacified by presenting entertainers. They'd go into town and they'd like set up these carnivals and these festivals. And they would do all the shows. And then one of the things they would do towards the end of the show, their kind of final act, was to put on a real spectacle. And that spectacle would have kept people calm and from rising up against the government and would have provided a little fun. And the spectacle was to take the lowest of the low prisoner and to bring him out and to see this person who probably hadn't eaten for a while, certainly weak, wasn't full-strength sort of warrior, this, like, pathetic prisoner this like scrap of an individual and to put him out there and to watch this person have to wage war against beasts and that was the spectacle and paul says what are you guys on about y'all are sitting here talking about paul apollos cephas i want this and i want that he's like don't you know what you're talking about all ministers of the gospel are we're stewards and we're spectacles we're like that final end beat at a show. What, what, what is this? And then finally, that all, and all, so you can see that there ought to be a lot of humbleness about ministers. And then finally, he talks about tenderness. And I need, to, I need to press into this one just a little bit. Tenderness. And here is where he gives us that third metaphor. He talks about the ministers of the church as fathers over a family. Okay? Now watch how this works. Verses 14 to 21. I'd say of all three of these, I think we need to see this one most clearly right here and right now. Paul had already compared the local church to a family, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. But now the emphasis is upon the minister as a spiritual father. Now, nowhere in all the New Testament does Paul go on about calling himself, well, I'm your spiritual father. and You need to listen to what I say. But here's the one spot he flies close to it. It's interesting. This guy wrote a lot. And this is the one time he's really bringing this bit up. He's like, I I need to talk with you on this metaphor right here. None of his letters does he ever call himself a father, but in comparing himself to a spiritual father, he's reminding them of the ministries that he's performed on their behalf. I want you to look at the Bible and see this for yourself. Look at verses 14 and 15. Paul talks about how he came in and as a father, he founded the family. The Corinthians were beloved by Paul. They were beloved children in the faith. Uh, For some in the church, Paul was the one to share the gospel with them. God used that moment to have faith and repentance come. Someone went from being a child of the world to a child of God. And Paul was there as as someone just helping, as a maiden, just helping the process along. But there's an aspect where in that moment, Paul is a spiritual father of sorts, a spiritual parent, if you would like. The local church then is God's family. God's people are going to come around. And how the local church is going to be taken care of It's going to have a spiritual father or, if you like, kind of a collection of church dads that are going to kind of gather around and they're going to be spiritually father-like to the people who call themselves members of the church. Business of a local church is to grow people up to maturity, and it's going to take some father figures to get in here and do some fatherly sort of things in there. I want you to even think about this with me. A child might have guardians or teachers, but he can have only one father. Only one special relationship. That Though I'm grateful for many men in my past, I only have one dad. And Paul's saying, you need to remember this here. Paul founded the church. Apollos followed him. Verses 16 and 17. Look at this in in the Bible for yourself. Paul then was an example to the family. He's calling on that. Paul pastored the church. He set himself before them in his example, in in love and devotion to Christ, in the way he served. Paul was such an example that he could say later in chapter 11, verse 1, you follow me as I follow Christ. So you're wondering what this looks like? I don't have to point you anywhere further. You follow me as I follow Christ. As a teacher, he set about to bring people to maturity through lessons. And as a father grows up a child, Paul saw himself as a father who was growing up the church. Then in verses 18 to 21, it says, Paul was faithful to discipline the family. No, listen, I, I, I have no illusions about what's about to happen here, right? Standing in a school hall in modern Queens Park about to say what I'm about to say from God's word. And I'm not gonna hold back to you. Paul was faithful to discipline the family as part of being a father of the family. Watch this. A child's will must be broken but not destroyed. This is what we're doing as parents, aren't we? We're trying to curb it. We're trying to shape it. Think about how the world works. Until a cult donkey is broken, it is dangerous and it is useless. But once it has been broken, it learns to obey. It learns to be gentle. It learns to be useful. Pride is a terrible thing in the Christian life. It calls us to bow up. It causes us to say, I won't. It makes us unsubmissive and it makes us unyielding. And the church in Corinth was full of pride if you if you like follow this with me the the yeast of this sin this leaven had made its way in and in chapter 5 verses 6 through 8 we learn the corinthians they indeed they are puffed up the yeast has inflated them all the way up and paul had been patient about the disobedience he heard about he warned it was the last time he warned he says listen i'm gonna have to come and i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to talk you through this i'm gonna have to bring some lessons But make no mistake, my friends, like two faulty pictures the Apostle Paul in this text. Here's the first one. The Apostle Paul is not some tolerant modern who's shouting out, this is the last time I tell you for the last time. There was more to him than that. He comes to them as a father, as a faithful parent, must discipline children. He saw himself in that relationship. What's the implication here, right? It means in our relationships with one another, it is a good and loving thing to have people that meet the qualifications and what the Bible gives us for being leaders in the church. It's a good thing for us to have a few of these guys set apart and who look after us as fatherly sort of figures. Because the Bible is very clear. It's inside of me. It's inside of you. It's inside of all of us. This, this sin of pride, this leaven, or if you like, this cancer, a little bit of this gets in the system. It can infect the whole thing. It's a good thing for us to have fathers who are going to see it and going to come to us. It's a good thing for us to have fathers that see us and they come to us. and They say, listen, I've noticed this pattern and this trend in your life. You need to stop it. That's not how we live in God's house. That's a good thing. Right. So that's that's what's happening in the chapter. We could obviously talk more about it, but I just want to show you this. This is a model of pastoral care. Chapter four is section of scripture prepares the way for him talking about how to grow up a church that follows in the rest of the book. There was much sin in the Corinthian congregation, and Paul was prepared to deal with it. And my dear friends, what are we looking for in a pastor in a church? We're looking for someone will, willing to deal with sin, right? If you ever receive a phone call, have a little, hey, can I pull you over here? I have a conversation with one of the elders of the church. They said, listen, I've just been watching your life. I've been worrying over you and praying over you and caring over you. I just need to bring this up with you because I'm concerned that it could get a hold of the whole thing as a good and loving thing. Look at this model of pastoral care and consider throughout the book, chapter 5, verse 9, Paul had already written them a letter, but they weren't listening. Um, Chapter 1, verse 11, and chapter 16, verse 17, some of the more spiritual members of the body, they reached out to him to share the burden. Like Paul, it's not going how you you, you said it should. Like we're, We're not doing just the gospel like you told us. We're doing all this other stuff now. Paul, we got guys in here sleeping with their mothers-in-laws. Is that, is that, are we doing this right? And then in chapter 7, verse 1, some of the leaders had even written to Paul for counsel. Guys who weren't the lead guy, just other guys on the team. They're even drawing up WhatsApp notes. Um, Paul, hate to bother. I imagine you're busy, but can you, can you speak to this? And Paul received that. Look at this model of pastoral care. Look at a church caring for itself by looking out for this together. And Paul, the, the, the apostle of grace, he gave them time to get their house in order. And then he comes to them as a loving father to help bring some corrections. He'll move to them. He'll more fully iron things out. We do learn in 2 Corinthians 12, 20 over to 13, 5 tells us the crises are over. There's still some stuff that needs to get ironed smoothed. This is what it is to be a leader in God's church. We're looking for a steward. We're looking for a spectacle. We're looking for a father. It's not an easy thing. And now flip your attention back to Paul. How did Paul do that? I imagine that would have been really stressful. What did he have available to him? Let me ask you a few questions. Imagine this guy, okay? How did Paul maintain an inner calm that allowed him to be a change agent in this kind of a situation? How did Paul achieve a differentiation that allowed him to be a non-anxious presence in a very anxious, and stressful environment? How was Paul around people who were puffed up, they were proud, they were carnal, they were immature, they they were refusing to engage with what needed to be engaged, and yet he could enter in where he could maintain his title as the apostle of grace, even as he had hard conversations? How did he do that? Well, that's exactly what's on offer to you and me. I want to show you that just now. First, check out chapter three, verses 21 to 23. The first theme that Paul was working on, how he was filled up and not puffed up. He was working off this theme. Look, it is God who's given us everything we need. And all around him were people that were just thinking, I'm a a self-made man, I'm a self-made woman, I'm a self-made family. What are you talking about? But here comes Paul. God has given us everything we need. So it's a big deal that Paul had to write to him on this theme of self deception in chapter three. He's like, Look, you gotta be careful. Like, you gotta be careful. And I'm reading this in this last week and we're hearing this today. It's like all of us on the spot. We just have to like wake up to this. I gotta be careful. Like scripture is telling me I run a pretty strong chance of deceiving myself, of looking at myself and saying, No, it's going all right, but we're actually off course. We must admit how little we know so we can get on learning some things don't we so paul's response is that we have to draw on the full resources that christ provides and the only way he can get to that moment when he says i don't care what you judge me for i don't care what a court judges me for i'm not even judging myself it's because he became so filled up look what he was filled up with in verses 22 and 23. chapter 3 verses 22 and 23 this idea everything is yours what an amazing statement all the wealth that belongs to people they're sitting there, and they, they, they had to be thinking, wait, Paul is ours. Our father in the faith is ours. The guy who wrote 13 New Testament books is ours. And then he's thinking, Apollos is ours. The Alexandrian prince of preachers. he is he's ours. He belongs to us. Cephas is ours. Wait, you're, you're kidding me. Peter, the rock, gospel of Mark, two specific letters, all his humanity, all his frailty, all that powerful preaching, all that walking in the spirit, that's ours? He goes on, the world is yours. The entirety of creation, it's your inheritance. Life is theirs. Every waking moment, every sleeping hour, it belongs to them. They don't belong to this life. They belong to Jesus and to live as Christ is die is gain. Philippians one twenty-one. Death is theirs. To die would be gain. The sting of death is gone. The garden tomb is empty. Death had become their servant. All death could do for this group of people is just usher them by the hand over to the king at last. The present was theirs, everything happening right now, every moment is in the hands of the loving Father who even shapes the unfavorable moments to turn about for our good, Romans 8, 29. The future is ours, the future is not uncertain, the future is not ominous, the future is not scary, the future is not nerve-wracking. No, the future is ours and it belongs to God. The one who holds my present is the one who holds my future and he will walk these things together. Why? Because Jesus Christ is God's Messiah and everything that we ever have has the double stamp of Jesus and the Father. And Paul's like, why focus on yourself when all of this is true? It doesn't make sense. So in chapter 4 verse 1, he's going to lead us out. He's going to walk us line by line. He says, so then ministers are stewards of the mystery of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 1. Ministers are servants of God, and God will hold them accountable. So remember 1 Corinthians 5, a judgment's coming, not a judgment of salvation, but a judgment of service. And look at his attitude as he anticipates that judgment of service. I don't care what you score me. It doesn't matter what you rate me. I'm not even walking around constantly rating myself in every situation. Oh, did I get that conversation right? Did I respond in the right way to that email? He had found something that made him so solid. He was not wishy-washy. He was not wavy. There's a sturdiness about this man. And then in verses 2 and 3, he leads us to see a life free from judgment is possible. I'll read them. Now it's required that those who have been given a trust, they must prove themselves to be faithful, and I carry very little. If I am judged by you or by a human court, indeed, I do not judge myself. Imagine that being your actual testimony, you know, not one of those things we just say. It's like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm there. But like, no, no, like this is your operating system. So anyone's going to lead God's house, they're certainly going to be judged. And we considered last week, just briefly, we're actually going to be judged more strongly than those who don't. And Paul's sitting here with that as a fact on his life. And he says, I don't care what others think. I don't even care what I think. I care what God thinks. I don't even judge myself. What a powerful dynamic that would be to bring to your family later tonight. I don't judge myself. What a, what a, what a freeing thought to carry you through your Sabbath tomorrow. I don't judge myself. I, I don't judge myself. What a powerful, powerful inner dynamic to show up at the office with on Monday morning. I am here today, and I don't judge myself. It's very powerful. powerful. And yet, we come up short of this, don't we? If if you're like me, you hear this, and you remember maybe a few hours, a few days, a few months, you've kind of held it in that lane, but you also know all those times you've swerved, all those times you haven't been filled, but you've been puffed, so to speak. And Jerry Bridges has a a Christian classic. It's called Respectable Sins. He addresses one of the most poisonous sins of the Christian life, the sin of judgmentalism. And it's seen as a respectable sin because being judgmental, it can kind of come off under the guise of, oh, hold on, no, 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 I'm just concerned for what's right. And we can have these respectable sins we put on And we just say, look, I'm just concerned for what's right and good. But if we're not careful, a critical and condemning spirit, it can infect us, can't it? It infects one part of us and it goes to another part. It can be like an infectious cancer that can just spread throughout the whole thing. If it's not rapidly stopped. So in verse four, Paul won't even be trapped by a clear conscience. And I was reading this, I was like, why is he saying this? Didn't he just say it? Why is he saying the same thing again? And then it hit me like a load of bricks. He's saying something that I needed to hear. Paul's, doing that. Paul's, Paul's clearing an objection that I would have to verse 3. In verse 3, I'd be like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. My conscience is clear, so I'm good. Paul says, I have many times when I'm operating with a clear conscience, and I won't even let that make me proud. In our world, it's all about the self. It's all about what do I think about me, and what do other people think about me, and what do I think about you, and what do you you think about him, and we're so consumed with this judging one another and weighing things up. If you like, inside in each of every one of us, our our hearts, they're like a supercomputer, and they're constantly running calculations. How does this land me? How does this make me look? How does, how, where does this place me? How does this affect my rating? How does this affect my standing? And you know it's true of you because every room that you ever step in, you can't help but run those calculations. And I think church is a fantastic place that the enemy tries to work this out. For anyone who ever stands up here, oh my goodness, some of the conversations we have with one another, oh, did I hit the note? Oh, did I hit the beat? Oh, did I hit the chord? Oh, did I hit the point? Like, we're in our heads about trying to even do this right. And this is what we do. We were made to be filled by God. And when we try to go at it our own way, all that's left is just to puff ourselves up with other stuff other judgments. And part of what we do in our pride, we make ourselves feel better by just angling against the other person. Isn't that just like sick? But it's what we do. We say, oh, I know I'm a wreck, but I know he's a bigger wreck. So I mean, surely like I'm doing better in the wreck rating than that guy. And one group of people does it against another group of people? Oh, look, I know we got our flaws, but at least we don't got their stuff. Look at what Paul had found. Paul's saying, there's even moments when I have a clear conscience. Verse 4, my conscience is clear. But that doesn't make me innocent. So he's not even trying to justify himself off handling situations rightly. He has found something from beyond his situation that's making him solid. It is the Lord who judges me. And the only way he's able to navigate every conversation he's ever in without worrying about what that person thinks of me, is he's actually already gone through the biggest judgment first. God on the cross, Jesus Christ in the flesh, he absorbed all the shame and all the judgment that could ever come. And Jesus looked at him and says, I judge you not. So he could live a life free of judgment. That's probably why he was talking about the courtroom. I mean, you're reading this in this courtroom language. It, it doesn't actually fit. It doesn't belong. And you're reading, it's like, I'm sorry, what are we talking about courtrooms? What are we talking about courtroom? Why are you bringing up courtrooms? And Paul's bringing up the courtroom language right there. And Paul's saying it's like Hall of Life is a massive trial, isn't it? Can't walk down the sidewalk without receiving a judgment. Can't sit in front of a mirror without receiving a judgment. Can't open up my inbox without receiving a judgment. He's saying this whole thing feels like one massive trial. It's just judgment, 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 judgment. Paul's saying, I found something, friends. And what he's doing in the warmth of this moment is he's offering it to us as well. He's saying, you can have this too. It would be an error that I think our, 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 our doubt, maybe even the enemy would want to plant in this moment and be like, look, Paul was a pretty insignificant guy. He was a bit of a monk. He just kind of spent all of his time wearing a bathrobe, eating soup, you know, drinking beer, brewed in a bathtub, studying the scriptures, praying six times a day. Like surely like he was just and he could have been like that great of an individual, that great of a human being. But think about it. He is arguably one of like the what five or six most significant human beings to ever walk the face of this earth. The missionary to the Gentiles. The guy that God used to graft everyone who's not a Jewish person this afternoon into the game. Like, we come through this guy's ministry. And he wasn't proud about it. He was just like, I'm nothing. In fact, he said in 1 Timothy, Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And then he says, of whom I'm the worst. So he had a way of going through life where people around him is like, gosh, man, you're a pretty big deal. Like, you're the reason all the Gentiles are going to have an opportunity. Like, you're pretty special. And he said, me? I'm the worst of all the sinners. So he had a humility dynamic on him. And here's the deal, my friends. In verse 4, we see we all live with the coming judgment. For people who are not Christians, that judgment is going to be what we do with Christ. And for people who are Christians, it's going to be what do we do with Christ. So then in verses 6 and 7, there's a difference between being puffed up and being filled up. He draws it out right there for us. You can see the great need of the moment. And my friends, could you, could I just encourage you with this right here? How, how can you make that move? How can I have that? How can we be a community where that is arising over time. We're getting more filled up. We're becoming more solid, not more puffed up and more flippant in our faith. Well, know this, my dear friends, it's because Jesus, he fills us where, where pride only inflated us. The natural condition of ourself is pride. Paul uses, it only shows up, the word only shows up six times and it's a, it has a word with a picture. You can think about the word picture that he gives us. He says, all pride does, the picture is to be overinflated, to be swollen, or to be extended beyond your proper size. And Paul says, Jesus comes in and whereas pride, it only inflated us, Jesus can fill us. The idea of something just being pumped so full of air again and again and again, but we know what it is to feel empty. We know what it is to feel insufficient. We know what it is to know this isn't working. And there's the offer my dear friends paul had found it and it's available to you no matter how long you've been a christian you can tap into this and you can start living fully into this or if you're here this afternoon and you're not a christian you can just reach out and grab it with the empty hands of faith that's available jesus christ offers to fill you in a way this world can only puff you up next thing i want you to see here is that jesus christ is our only boast He's saying that in the midst of a church kind of torn up and ripped apart about all these leaders. Remember, this is a church with lots of splits. And people were boasting, oh, I'm kind of with this one, or "Oh, I kind of wish we did it that way. And and he's saying, look, he's our only boast. He's our only claim. He's the only thing we can reach out to and say, this one's mine. Gospel transformation is possible. Paul doesn't play the game. He's living another way. Paul, Paul didn't have to go through it thinking to himself Oh, well, you know, what so-and-so and -and so-and-so said they're proud of me, so I'm doing okay in the world. Paul could live a life where he said, it doesn't matter what they think, and it doesn't matter what any court could ever say. He's saying, I don't even think about what I think about me. I care about God. My dear friends, what I want to get across to you in a strong way this afternoon is this fact that Jesus Christ was judged for us so we can live a life free of judgment Jesus Christ was judged for us Jesus Christ was judged for you on the cross he was judged for you you can live a life of not judging yourself you might you might even we might even miss that a little bit together we might think oh I just don't need to think about myself so much or the other way you could miss this is you could say oh I don't need to have such positive views about myself when I do think about myself. I just need to be hard on myself and be mean to myself. I need to sit in front of the mirror tonight. I need to look at it and say, you are a stupid idiot. Like, how could you ever? No, the problem isn't you need to go from here and you need to think more of yourself. The problem isn't you need to go from here and you need to think less of yourself. The problem is you need to go from here and just think about yourself less. It's what Tim Keller helps us see. It's the freedom of self-forgetfulness. That's what our hearts are really craving for. And we're wanting to reach out and grab, if we can, a dynamic for how we can be solid and full without having to be puffed up. And Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ offers it to you today. For however long you've been a Christian, this could become your testimony. I don't care what you think about me. I don't even care what I think about me. I care about what Jesus thinks about me and his conscience was clear, that didn't make him innocent. The fact that he had a clear opinion about himself, that isn't what he was using to justify himself. He's saying, even though my conscience is clear, that does not justify me. He used the word justify, the same word that he uses in Galatians and in Romans to talk about how Christ had justified him. We're all looking for an ultimate verdict. Someone from the outside to look in and say, I know you, I see you, and this is how it is between us. And he found it, and it was in a relationship with God. Every single day we go to trial, every single day. Tomorrow morning, the Monday after that, we're going to drag ourselves out the front door of whatever we live, and we're going to head off to trial. It's going to be a world where people are going to be judging us right and left. And Paul is saying, I have found a way to go through that without being bogged down by all the judgments that are hurled my way. It's about being filled with who God, what God thinks of me in Jesus. So with God, the verdict leads to the performance. Without God, your performance is what you're resting your verdict on all the time. And finally, my dear friends, Jesus was judged, so you don't have to be judged. Jesus was put on trial. Jesus was taken away. Jesus was counted as all of my sin. He was counted as all of your sin as a substitute. So you don't have to go to that trial. And my dear friends, if you will situate your mind in that, if we can keep this ever before us, we can become the sorts of individuals and God can indeed make us the sort of community where we can move through this life without judging others, without caring about the judgment of others, and without even being focused on ourselves, we can finally be free to focus on our God and one another. It's just as Jesus said us, the key to finding your life is to indeed lose it in the pursuit of God and other people. That's what he's saying. He's going to keep talking after it. More to come next week. In the clarity of this moment, we're about to receive the Lord's Supper. So a few people are going to be handing out the Lord's Supper for us this afternoon as they're grabbing these baskets they're going to be passing through the room. Listen to what I'm saying right now. If you are here this afternoon and you are a Christian, it does not matter where your church membership is. If you're just passing through in the world, if you are here today and you are a Christian, if you are looking to the judgment of Jesus, then you grab one of these as it passes by. But if you're here this afternoon and you are not a Christian, then just let the basket pass, but receive what I say next. The gospel is being extended to you today. This promise, this offer that we can be free of all judgments, we can be absolutely free. Receive the gospel that's being extended to you now. Receive the freedom from judgment that's being extended to you now. The freedom from having to stand before God and give an account and a reckoning. Freedom from all that guilt you've been piling on yourself. Freedom from all that guilt other people have been piling on you. Receive the gospel and then keep coming to this church. And next time we celebrate this supper together, enjoy it with us. But Jesus was judged, so you don't have to be judged. Jesus was judged, so you don't have to go on judging everybody. Watch this one. Jesus was judged, so you can stop it with all the judging yourself. Because on the night that he was going to give his life, he was going to be portrayed as our substitute, as he was going to enter into that ultimate judgment for us. On the night that he was going to be betrayed, he gathered around and he had a meal with his followers. It was a very simple meal on the table. They had bread and they had, they had, they had bread and they had wine and the sacrificial lamb himself, Jesus Christ was seated at the table. The lamb was being prepared for judgment. The lamb was being prepared for the justice of God. And he made a covenant. He made a promise with his people. And it's the beauty of what we celebrate right here. He took the bread and he said, this bread, it represents my body. And he said, in words, he was communicating to them, tomorrow it is going to be ripped apart as the judgment of God bears down on his very body. So your body can go clear. Friend, receive the pacifying judgment of God today as Jesus Christ became sin who had no sin. So you and me can become the righteousness of God. Let's take and eat the bread. I'm not sure which of the judgments is loudest in your ears, in your heart. Um, maybe it's the judgments that you heap upon other helpless people as they're walking around. Maybe it's the judgments that you constantly receive from other people and you just can't shake it. Maybe it's the way you judge your own self and what it's like for you to sit in front of a mirror and see you. Jesus Christ was judged so you don't have to be judged. In fact, on the cross, what he was doing is he was drinking the cup of God's judgment for us. So Christian, This afternoon, as you drink this, it's his blood that was spilled. It was poured out for you so your blood can go clear. Let's take and drink together. We praise God. And if you're here today and you are not a Christian, the gospel that you have seen and you have heard all around you, it is available to you. I pray that you'll snatch it up right now you'll know that's not me and I need in on that. And you will come and you will talk to anyone else at this church this afternoon and you will let them know I need to get in on this judgment-saving Jesus. It's what we're here for today. We're gonna have some time to respond. Let me invite you to stand to your feet. Prayer and ministry is available at the front of the room if you wanna just come over here and have somebody pray for you. Maybe you wanna share a burden, you wanna speak something to somebody today. We have people who are prepared and ready for you come and share what's on your heart maybe you want to respond right there on the spot giving your heart to your god it's a time for us to meet god's word has been opened god's spirit is here it's time for us to meet our god